Hey, hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades and friends. It is Alexander von Sternberg here, giving you a little bit of an introduction to this second episode, this sophomore attempt, hopefully not a sophomore slump of History Impossible. I want to first give a big shout out to Mr. Daniele Bellelli for the, well, the shout out he gave me in the Hardcore History with Dan Carlin Facebook group, where he, dear God, guys, he called the first episode of History Impossible brilliant. I I don't know what else is a good motivator or a better motivator than that when Daniele Bellelli calls your work brilliant. So thank you very much, Daniele. I really hope that subsequent episodes, you know, meet that seal of approval as well. So thank you again. Another bit of housekeeping, uh, you might have noticed that there's another episode of History Impossible, or rather, it's in the History Impossible episode feed on iTunes and everywhere else. Uh, You probably noticed something called an Impossible Pop Quiz. Well, that is part of a new series that, uh, that I'm starting with my lovely lady, Molly Pan, because she's not the biggest fan of history, but she really does like listening to me talk. Apparently, she's like one of the few, I think, but she... Uh, she's not a big fan of history, but she does like talking about the episode that I made her listen to. So I decided to quiz her on it. Uh, she needs a grade for it because she doesn't like learning anything unless she gets a grade. Those are her words, uh, not mine. And, uh, we decided to record that and we have a good little episode for you. I'm not really sure where the impossible pop quizzes are going to end up. They could become part of the premium incentives once I actually get a Patreon started up if you guys like them. You know, they're a fun little bonus. So we're just going to play around with those and see what where that goes. And speaking of Patreon, yes, I know, I don't have one yet. I haven't started it up. But you can support History Impossible. All you got to do is go to historyimpossible.com. Go to the bottom of the page. You'll see the button that says donate. It'll take you to a PayPal donation page. You can shoot me a one-time donation if you feel so inclined, or you can start up a monthly donation if you want to support the podcast and the resources needed to make it happen. Any amount is appreciated. Really just listening to the podcast is appreciated, but if you want to financially support it, that'll be even more appreciated. Anyway, I honestly didn't expect to have a second episode out so soon, but I guess the research and writing gods smiled upon me. A little bit more than a month after the series premiere of History Impossible, I have another episode for you. And honestly, I didn't really expect to be doing this one as soon as I ended up doing it, let alone even at all, because this is about the Civil War. And honestly... I've never really been all that interested in the United States Civil War, but somewhere along the line, I honestly couldn't tell you when or how I came about this topic, but I did, and it ended up really speaking to me because it's very much in line with, uh, ugh, I almost said brand. I'm not going to say brand, but with the, uh, I'll be pretentious, the mission of History Impossible, (laughs) um, And I was just thinking, there's no way I can't cover this. Now, the problem is I don't still don't really know if I'm handling this subject right, because it's about as unpleasant and dark as you can really get to depending on who you talk to. But I think most people will agree when they see the title alone of this episode that they're going to be like, okay, 
what's this guy doing? Who does he think he is? Because this is a subject that even though every episode in this series known as History Impossible kind of deserves its own content warning, and I'm not a big fan of content warnings, mind you, in the process of doing even the preliminary research of this episode, I realized this is going to need one because this entire episode is about sexual assault, specifically during war and specifically being committed on very vulnerable people. And, you know, who isn't vulnerable, who is a civilian in occupied territory during a war? I know, but I'm just saying that this needs to be said. So again, you can see this as sort of your second content warning. I mean, like I said, I I mark this podcast as explicit. This is a podcast that covers some very dark subjects, but this one requires a little bit of an extra one because it, well, you'll see. All right. So without further ado, with all of that out of the way, comrades and friends, let's get into some impossible history. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch or if you have no appetite, now is a good time to switch off the radio. ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The European Russians are the outrottenest of the Europe. One who knows that another world will utterly destroy the I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is inside. I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare. <laughs> Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I have tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. This is History Impossible. Rape culture. This is a term that we've all heard countless times, though less so in recent memory, most likely due to it starting to fall out of less mainstream favor for good or bad reasons, depending on who you ask. Both sides of that argument, however, can probably both agree that it's a term that's loaded with a lot of baggage, emotional, psychological, social, political There were countless examples of this very serious term with its incredibly serious implications being invoked like it was a magical attention-grabbing incantation in various headlines throughout the 2010s. For example, 25 everyday examples of rape culture, or 10 things to end rape culture, or when a fundraiser shows us rape culture exists in Canada— Or my personal favorite, Law & Order SVU has more to say about rape culture than any other show. So, as you can see, this term is used in so many different contexts that you might be left scratching your head and wondering, what the hell is rape culture anyway? We have kind of lost track of what it might have originally meant, let alone what it means now. Well, the term rape culture originated with second-wave feminists during the 1970s, and it first appeared in print in 1974 in a compilation called Rape, the Source Book for Women. 
Now, the idea was that because rape was underreported and assumed by average citizens to just not happen, that it was therefore common and logic followed that because it was common and not acknowledged, it was therefore accepted by the wider culture. And because of this acceptance, the argument goes, this is causal evidence that a fundamentally misogynistic and sexist culture that isn't being addressed exists around us. Now, this notion shared by a growing number of sources during the decades that followed aimed to bring to light the commonality of sexual assault in supposedly enlightened first world societies. And for the most part, they succeeded. As you can see from the headlines that I shared a moment ago, admittedly a little tongue in cheek, but as you can see from those headlines, the concept was alive and well up until the 2010s. And any glibness I'm expressing aside, it it's certainly a debatable concept at many levels, especially in a time like now when we're seeing contradictory data claims coming from multiple directions and different conclusions being drawn from the data sets, depending largely on the ideological persuasion of the person reporting the data. But I am here to tell you now that beyond a shadow of a doubt, rape culture does exist, just not in the way you might think. I'm actually talking about times of war. In war, especially under the boot of an occupying force, rape culture as it was defined in Rape the Source Book for Women is a very real reality, and it's almost an inevitability. We know that rape in war is as old as war itself, probably even older if we're being honest. It is indeed almost inevitable that there will be a raging debate about our species' innateness toward violence and chaos or lack thereof. I, I tend to personally fall on the side of conditional innateness, especially since the two ape species most closely related to us homo sapiens, chimpanzees and bonobos in this case, they both display starkly different social structures and quote-unquote values, for lack of a better term, if you'll forgive me anthropomorphizing some animals a little bit. Because bonobos are peaceful hippies, basically, that love sex and matriarchal TLC and chimps are vile, genocidal maniacs that form war parties, uh, beat their enemies to death, frequently engage in rape and infanticide to induce mating, and even, for good measure, drink the blood of other chimps that they've killed. And the last time I checked, it wasn't impossible for us, relatives of both of these species, to have the traits of both species, depending on various conditions, both internal and external. If that sounds like a cop-out in the quote-unquote innate violence debate, all I'll say is guilty as charged. I just don't know. I'm not a biologist or an anthropologist. But I do know that the violence expressed by chimpanzees, the directed, organized violence that often turns sexual in nature, is far too similar for any of us to ignore, not if we want to understand why rape occurs almost without fail in times of war and occupation. This isn't to say that there is a consensus in the scientific community about the connection between innately violent behavior in chimps and in humans, but much of the behavior that has been observed by evolutionary biologists over the years is hard to ignore. There was a longitudinal study conducted by the primatologist Ian Gilby and his colleagues that had been going on for over 50 years, so it was very truly longitudinal. And in this study, they observed the males of a troop of chimpanzees mate with the females both when they were sexually receptive and when they weren't. 
So in other words, the females really had no say in if they were, you know, going to mate with the males or not. And in 1995, a primatologist at the University of Michigan named Barbara Smuts wrote an article in Discover Magazine. And if you're old enough and you read Discover Magazine in the 90s, you might actually remember this article that was written. And she noted how she witnessed male chimpanzees frequently attacking estrus females, as in females who were ready to mate, uh, in the days leading up to actually mating with them, which was theorized by the famous Jane Goodall, of all people, as a form of fear-based conditioning, which was being used to ensure successful reproduction, basically to make sure that the females didn't run away, that they knew that these males essentially owned them, at least for the next couple of days. But Smuts continued her observations of Hamadrius baboons with the following description, quote, Male Hamadrius baboons, who form small harems by kidnapping child brides, maintain a tight reign over their females through threats and intimidation. If, when another male is nearby, a Hamadrius female strays even a few feet from her mate, he shoots her a threatening stare and raises his brows. She usually responds by rushing to his side. If not, he bites the back of her neck. Unquote. Much of what us humans would call rape within ape communities usually revolves around what we would see as domestic violence, in other words. But groups of Tanzanian chimps have engaged in protracted warfare with other chimp tribes, with groups of 30 to 50 males, quote-unquote, patrolling the edges of another chimp tribe's territory. What they do is they lie in wait for male chimps from the other tribe to be isolated from their group, after which they'll move in for the kill. They'll hold the enemy male immobile and then torture him to death. Using methods as brutal as twisting his limbs until the muscles rip and tear a sort of manual animal kingdom version of the rack. And even flaying him with their bare hands. After doing this to several male members of the opposing tribe, the war party of chimps will rush to the other tribe's territory and quote-unquote annex it, for lack of a better term. They will murder all of the males and, most crucially, take all of the females for themselves and forcibly incorporate them into their own tribe. And it's not as simple as holding all of these females captive. They take the females' infants and often murder them and even eat them in front of the females, forcing the females to reproduce with this new group, ensuring that these new males' genes will be passed on and their rivals' family line will essentially be destroyed forever. It's almost as if the Roman historian Livy had watched a tribe of chimps when he described the taking of the Sabine women by Rome's mythological founder Romulus. I've always found it really interesting that the researchers in this field all typically and repeatedly make it clear that they in no way are publishing these findings to excuse crimes committed by humans. They even express doubt at how much of a connection there is between the behavior of monkeys and the behavior of humans. And I completely understand why they go out of their way to say this. And it's not really because they're covering their asses. It's not even that anyone who studies this behavior among chimpanzees is looking for an excuse for human wretchedness or takes any joy out of seeing these connections between the two species. I mean, if you talk to a biologist who studies these kinds of things, while their eyes light up and, like with Marvel, at what they've observed, at the, how close they are to, you know, human analogs, these scientists also seem very haunted, would be the best word, by what they've seen. It's as if they've peered into the basement lair of a serial killer. They're so haunted, like I was saying, by what they've seen, 
that it's almost like they need to remind themselves that this isn't a one-to-one comparison, that they aren't peering through some time portal and seeing what early humans unleashed in what Thomas Hobbes called the state of nature. And yet, because of the closeness, because of all these things that they've seen that have really helped show them how closely we're related to these animals, you can tell that they aren't completely convinced that we're not so completely different from them. It's not that they're right or wrong. One thing that makes them special as human beings, really what makes us all special and different from these creatures that we study, is our ability to anthropomorphize. But what also makes us special is our ability to recognize patterns. These scientists know that what they've witnessed in these apes is really more akin to cold, amoral, evolutionary, adaptive behaviors playing out in real time. But they can't help themselves but see the practice of war hand-in-hand with the practice of rape. This is also because the practice of wartime rape with humans is so ancient that we have writers such as Herodotus writing of its occurrences in his work, telling of the rape of Phocian women by Persian soldiers. I mean, if you've read the Bible, you know that rape in war fills its pages, such as with the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 2, stating, quote, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women taken, Or the book of Isaiah, chapter 13, verse 16, stating, Their little children will be dashed to death before their eyes, their homes will be sacked, and their wives will be taken, There's also a story in Judges, chapter 21, verse 10, in which after murdering their brothers and parents, 400 virgins were taken from the ancient town of Jabesh-Gilead, and they were carted off by the conquering Israelites to be put into slavery and, of course, raped. Or if we return to the example which I referenced a moment ago when I was talking about the chimps, the famous Roman historian Livy recounted the mythological founding of Rome when Romulus, who he himself was a product of rape according to the mythology surrounding him, Romulus was facing a shortage of women and slow population growth of his tribe, And when he realized this, he invited the Sabine tribe to a religious festival where he promptly had the Sabine men massacred and the women carted off to serve as baby makers for the Roman tribe. Now, true or not, this fabled account did presage what was to come with this fledgling empire. Later in their development, the Romans themselves had harsh penalties for sexual violence within their societies and even on their enemy civilian populations during times of truce and diplomacy, but... During times of war, and especially during the sacking of an enemy city or town, mass rape of civilians, both male and female, was accepted. Our uh, Grand Poobah of history podcast, Dan Carlin, in his most recent episode as of this recording of his Supernova in the East series, he actually spent a few moments talking about the Roman historian Tacitus's account of the sacking of the surrendered Cremona, in which there was a quote-unquote indiscriminate orgy of alternating rape and murder. It, like pretty much any story involving the sacking of a city, reads exactly like those accounts of chimpanzee war parties. But it wasn't as if sexual assault being used as a weapon ended with the collapse and division of the Roman Empire. I mean, Vikings, during their raids of the British Isles throughout the 8th through the 10th centuries, became known for their reputation of quote-unquote raping and pillaging, and the Mongols, Genghis Khan in particular, became so notorious for his, at least, predilection for spreading his seed by any means necessary, that there's actually DNA evidence, and I shouldn't laugh, but it's still remarkable, that 
8% of men living in the region of the former Mongol Empire today share the same Y chromosome as the first Khan. Genghis himself is purported to have said, quote, The greatest joy a man can know is to conquer his enemies and drive them before him, to ride their horses and take away their possessions, to see the faces of those who were dear to him bedewed with tears, and to clasp their wives and daughters in his arms, unquote. Rape is so prevalent throughout the history of war and conquest that it essentially becomes a forgotten or even casually mentioned footnote, especially in ancient times, times from which we supposedly transcended long, long ago. But nothing, not even the Golden Age of Islam or the Italian Renaissance or even the English Enlightenment, none of that could stop the march of brutal human nature every time we started beating the drums and marching into war. Dan Carlin, again, in his stellar Ghosts of the Ostfront series, explains probably one of the most brutal aspects of the Soviet front during World War II, in which the invading German army in 1941 had a bit of a tendency to rape the thousands of Russian women that they came across, only to have this atrocity in a cruel twist of irony turned on their own women and girls in kind when the Red Army crossed the Austrian and German borders in 1945. Not only did this occur during the invasion into Germany, but there are many horrific accounts of the rape of German women during the Allied occupation of Germany committed by usually drunk Allied soldiers, mostly by Soviet troops, but by British and American troops as well. To the victor go the spoils, as the saying went. And since we're talking about the Second World War, it's especially important to note that this wasn't confined to the European theater. While... Much of their activity was relegated to torture and mass murder, and eventually, some of the most brutal medical experimentation known to history, the opening months of the Japanese invasion of China in 1937 after the Battle of Shanghai became termed the Rape of Nanking by the great writer and historian Iris Chang, whose work I used in the last episode, you might recall, she used that term for a reason. The International Military Tribunal for the Far East made an estimate that around 20,000 Chinese women, including children and the elderly, were raped and often murdered during the Japanese Empire's invasion and occupation. The Reverend James M. McCallum, stationed in Nanking, would write in his diary, quote, I know not where to end. Never I have heard or read such brutality. Rape. 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 We estimate at least 1,000 cases a night and many by day. In case of resistance or anything that seems like disapproval, there's a bayonet stab or a bullet. People are hysterical. Women are being carried off every morning, afternoon, and evening. The whole Japanese army seems to be free to go and come as it pleases, and do whatever it pleases. Unquote. It was almost always the same. Chinese women and girls would be rounded up into groups, individuals being given to groups of Japanese soldiers who would gang rape them, often torturing them through genital mutilation in the process before finally just killing them, usually through a simple skewering by bayonet, but sometimes even by straight-up beheading. Sometimes these women would simply die from the process of being raped by multitudes of eager soldiers. Even the heroic leader of the safety zone in Nanking and... Seemingly paradoxically, a Nazi party member, John Rabe, was aghast at what he saw and recorded it in his diary. Quote, in one of the houses in the narrow street behind my garden wall, a woman was raped and then wounded in the neck with a bayonet. Last night, up to 1,000 women and girls are said to have been raped, about 100 girls at Jinling College alone. You hear nothing but rape. 
If husbands or brothers intervene, they're shot. What you hear and see on all sides is the brutality and bestiality of the Japanese soldiers. Unquote. The Nanking invasion is probably the most infamous case of war rape in the modern era, but it's not like the practice suddenly ended with the bombing of Hiroshima or Nagasaki or with the formation of the UN and the Geneva Conventions. The Bosnian War of 1992 to 1995 was a particularly brutal example of rape actually being used as a perversely generative weapon by the Bosnian Serbs against the Bosnian Muslim and Bosnian Croat population of the region. The Serbian army of the Republika Srpska, led by this vile little creature known as Ratko Mladic, would set up literal quote-unquote rape camps, including the infamous Vilina Vlas Hotel, in which, as an act of cultural and ethnic genocide, Bosnian Muslim women would be repeatedly raped until they were pregnant with a child of Serbian blood, after which they'd be turned loose to give birth to the new blood or simply kill themselves to avoid the shame. The Serbs didn't care which. This was all done in an effort to speed along the demise of the Bosniak bloodline, which, in a cruel twist of fate, was really only distinct from the Bosnian Serb bloodline through its traditional cultural adherence to Islam instead of the Serbian Orthodox Church rather than any real, quote-unquote, racial differences. Another war criminal named Radomir Kovac was found to be keeping four Bosniak girls in his apartment, three of whom he would beat and rape himself while handing out the fourth to his friends and acquaintances before he eventually sold them all into slavery of some other monster in the Serbian army. In a bit of foreshadowing for the kind of justice or lack thereof that we're going to see in our story, Kovac was eventually convicted by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and sentenced to 20 years in prison in 2002. He was given an early release by The Hague in 2013. When the Bosnian War ended, the tallies began to be conducted. Estimates ranged from the quote-unquote low end of 12,000 rapes by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the high end of 50,000 rapes by the Bosnian Interior Ministry. In addition to the countless women and girls being raped during this ethnic cleansing, 3,000 of the rapes have been estimated to have been perpetrated against Bosnian men and boys during the conflict, though that number is a low estimate, thanks to so many men refusing to come forward due to simple shame or outright fear. The number of women and girls victimized dwarfs those numbers, but we are talking about numbers in the many tens of thousands overall, and probably scores more thanks for the unwillingness for victims of both genders to come forward, and not to mention the silence that comes from the 34,700 Bosnians who remain missing, just straight up missing altogether as of 2012. When tabulating rape that has occurred against a population during wartime, this is why it's always best if you can call something like this best, to aim high with the estimate and work your way down, because the number is almost always certainly higher. If there is indeed a rape culture, it exists in times of war and occupation. Of this, there really is no doubt. Unfortunately, despite many claims of the contrary or flat-out unwillingness to believe it, this occurred on American soil and not just on the far-flung battlefields of Europe or Asia. The Union Army in the United States Civil War was just as guilty of this practice of wartime rape as anyone else, especially, and in particular, against the women they were supposedly liberating from bondage. 
lot of people, historians included for a very long time as it happens, didn't and don't want to believe that the United States Civil War had much rape in it. It's been called a quote-unquote low-rape war by more than one source. The prevailing notion with many Civil War historians, especially from the mid-20th century before revisionist history started to become in vogue, and of the contemporaries of the 19th century, that due to the social mores of the time that placed gentlemanly conduct at a premium, that sexual assault was nigh-on unthinkable for these soldiers. Never mind the fact that these were fellow countrymen fighting each other rather than two opposing forces separated by border language, religion, and custom, though that's been another claim made to support this notion of the Civil War being a quote-unquote low-rape war. This term for the American Civil War as being a low-rape war was coined by journalist and feminist scholar, as it happens, Susan Brown Miller in her somewhat controversial 1975 book, Against Our Will. In it, she made the quote-unquote fellow countrymen argument that I alluded to a moment ago, in which she said the following, quote, Injunctions against assaulting one's sister or one's buddy's sister are part of the code of honor among men. Furthermore, anonymity between rapist and victim is an important factor in rape, since an unknown woman is more easily stripped of her humanity, unquote. Putting aside the fact that the majority of sexual assaults have been largely shown to be perpetrated by someone known by the victim, Brownmiller's assertion that brotherly conduct was what kept men in line in the Civil War ends up contradicting the fact that the one context in which stranger rape is most prevalent is in war. Her reasoning for this assertion seems to be that she completely bought into this notion that all of the American men who fought in the Civil War saw themselves as fighting other Americans rather than just the, the quote-unquote enemy. As brother against brother, that narrative starts to fall apart when you look at the simple fact that the United States is, is an extremely big place, and many soldiers in the occupying northern forces had never even been to the South. Here in 2019, all a northerner has to do in order to visit the South is buy a plane ticket on Priceline, hop on a 757, drink a tomato juice, and then be there in a few hours. In the mid-19th century, you had to make preparations to go, buy supplies and gear, maybe pack some heat, and then brave the American wild if you wanted to leave your own town. So the South was another country, and because of the tumultuous political climate that led to secession in the first place, and then finally war... Many of the Union men probably just saw the South as another nation, because at that point, it essentially was. In a slightly more contemporary book by historian Reed Mitchell called The Vacant Chair, a more critical view of Brownmiller's work is taken, and while Mitchell did acknowledge some of the ugly truth that we have to face about the Civil War, he does also fall into the low-rape war trap that Brownmiller did nearly 20 years before he made the same mistake. And this mistake was less that he portrays the American Civil War as a low-rape war, but more that he characterizes it in this way because of 19th century gentlemanly conduct, or what Mitchell calls the quote-unquote power of domesticity. Elaborating further on this notion of gentlemanly restraint, Mitchell writes, quote, Even soldiers angered by the treason of Southern white women found it difficult to attack individual women directly. Another was the power of the social ideal of self-control. True manhood was characterized by sexual restraint, not sexual assertion. Even mutually agreeable intercourse would have threatened the masculine identity. Letting anger toward women break out in unsanctioned violence against women would have been unmanly. Unquote. Last time I checked, when you're covered in muck, when you haven't bathed in months or had a proper meal, 
are angry, terrified, and, like most men in these cases, drunk out of your mind to deal with the horror, being gentlemanly or even simply possessing quote-unquote manhood is likely the last thing you're going to be concerned about, especially if you've decided that all you really want is a warm body by any means necessary. This view shared by scholars like Brown, Miller, and Mitchell is largely a lily-white, rose-colored glasses view of history. It's, a, it's its own form of revisionism, if you will. When looking at supposed impossibilities, like the ones covered in this story, or the ones I covered in the previous episode story, or most likely most of the stories I'm going to cover in this podcast, I tend to defer to this quote from the famous literary critic Jonathan Yardley when he said that, quote, we like our history sanitized and theme-parked and self-congratulatory, not bloody and angry and unflattering, unquote. When applied to the story of the rapists that served in the United States Civil War, he wasn't kidding. Not only did Northern soldiers rape, but they raped more than their Confederate counterparts. Par for the course with an occupying force in times of war. As numerous as they are, the primary sources for the Civil War are actually far from complete, thanks to the destruction of most contemporary Confederate records. Despite that, we have quite a few sources that delve into the question of the Union troops' predilection for raping their fellow countrywomen. Even still, the records are far from complete, and, as I mentioned earlier, many rapes that occur, especially during wartime, and especially what we're about to get into given the standards of the 1860s in the United States, go completely unreported, not to mention unpunished. We need to keep this in mind as we move through our story, but despite that, we have been graced with an amazing secondary source in the form of Kim Murphy's I'd Rather Die, which is by far the most comprehensive account of rape during the United States Civil War thus far. Murphy's work serves as a sort of centerpiece for these stories, so we'll be pulling a lot from it, both primary source quotes and from her own analysis. She spends a fair amount of time exploring, in some ways, the most important aspect to our story, the social, cultural, and legal standards of the time, especially with regards to rape. These standards can easily be seen in the court documents and testimonies of the women in these stories, but we should take a few moments to go down a sort of linguistic rabbit hole to bring everyone up to speed in the terminology used at the time. And as serious as this story is, it's kind of hard for me not to at least smirk at the hyper-provincial euphemisms for rape that judges, lawyers, and journalists use during the time. If a woman was assaulted during the 18th and 19th centuries in England and in the United States, she was insulted or violated or submitted to an outrage. Most of the time, a woman was simply outraged or had had an outrage committed upon her person. I can't tell you how many times I've read that phrase doing the research for this episode. Putting my political incorrectness at smirking at these things aside in all seriousness, it's not that these terms are wrong in any technical sense, but the lack of directness in the language being used actually provides a sort of nice keyhole view into the standards of the time. When it came to sex, consensual or otherwise, no one was about to be straightforward about it or its occurrences. A lot of digital ink has been spilled in the last decade or so, discussing how easy or difficult it is for women to make credible accusations of sexual assault. I will leave that contemporary debate up to the internet culture warriors, but since we can deal with historical facts here in this story, it's very easy to show 
that women had it pretty goddamn tough in the 19th century when it came to receiving legal redress for rape and other types of sexual assault. Not only was she way less likely to be believed by a court unless she immediately reported the rape to her father or husband or other trustworthy male figure in her life like her brother, but she needed to show demonstrable evidence on her body that she'd been attacked. No DNA evidence at the time, remember, guys. We're talking about bruises and other injuries, typically. In addition to that... She needed to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that she hadn't done anything to quote-unquote provoke what was often called her attacker's lustings. Now, before you immediately jump into the comment section of this episode or on iTunes or send me an angry email to tell me that none of this has really changed, you need to understand that the results of legal proceedings against rape might not always come out in favor of the victim now, but they come out in favor a lot more than they used to. The primary reason for this is not only different legal standards, but different social standards. If an unmarried woman was assaulted, and if she was quote-unquote decent enough to still be a virgin when the assault occurred, social dictum had it that she would need to be willing to lay down her life to protect her chastity. Not figuratively, literally. As Kim Murphy's book's title suggests, a frequent phrase women would utter when confronted by a man looking to take advantage of her was... I had rather die. This wasn't just a phrase. As far as the judges of the time were concerned, if you were a woman being assaulted, you had better put your money where your mouth is. This is why the most repeated cross-examination question during the court proceedings of the time was always the same. Why did you not resist? Because, the logic went, if you're still here telling us this story, you obviously didn't resist enough. Otherwise, you'd be dead and, more importantly, still chased and thus saved in the eyes of the Almighty. That is, of course, unless you had an impressive male character witness and or unless you could show that you were so physically subjugated, beaten within an inch of your life, in other words. If any of these standards weren't met to a T, the woman, as far as the courts were concerned, had given legal consent and any talk of rape was clearly just knitting circle gab. You'd be forgiven for assuming that these character standards being used in court were ancient in European and American society, but the truth is actually more complicated than that. These standards, specifically of whether or not the woman had past or unclear sexual history, they actually didn't really start mattering when deliberating rape cases in the courts until the 19th century. These artificial barriers to justice were actually put in place largely thanks to the standards established in England in the centuries before the American Civil War, in which the punishment for rape was deemed to be capital, as in you will be put to death if found guilty. And as surprising or weird as this may sound, when a crime is considered worthy of a death sentence, the legal standards for seeking that sentence are going to get increasingly strict as time goes by. You combine this legal standard with always evoking social and legal standards of a young democratic society like the United States, you're actually essentially asking for a legal imbalance of the sexes in which the sex that gets raped more often becomes seen as increasingly untrustworthy. The Commonwealth v. Thomas court case from 1812 actually shows the evolving standards of the young United States quite effectively. It says, quote, Force must be such as many reasonably be supposed adequate to overcome the physical resistance of the woman, taking into consideration the relative strength of the parties and other circumstances of the case, such as making outcries and giving alarm, unquote. 
It's an easy mistake to make, but this level of complexity really just muddies the waters and begins to put the burden of proof on the victim to an undue level. The burden of proof is and always should be on the victim of any crime. It's the foundation of a civil society, at least ours. However, this standard can and has been pushed too far at times, including and especially with rape cases in the 19th century in America. A legal medical text from 1854 called Principles of Medical Jurisprudence, written by an Amos Dean, explained that when a woman came forward with an accusation of rape, the woman's bruises needed to be examined carefully because, quote, the bruises may be self-inflicted with the view to sustain her testimony. Notwithstanding the violence, the conduct of the female may have been such as to imply consent on her part, or she may have consented after the infliction of violence, unquote. To put it bluntly, if a man raped you in the 1800s, you had better have more than just a few bruises to show for it. Otherwise, the level of resistance you gave was clearly not enough for it to be real rape. No woman could escape this standard of needing to play a pretty much a dangerous game of chicken with her rapist, regardless of her age. The case of 12-year-old Samantha Eustacia Hakes in 1856 is a perfect example of this, in which she awoke to find a man, Charles Pollard, in her bed trying to have sex with her. When she told him to go away, Pollard simply claimed that, quote, he would not hurt her, unquote, and proceeded to simply just rape her. Despite being a much bigger man, despite him being an adult, and despite her being a mere 12 years old, Pollard would be granted a new trial and have his rape charge overturned to, quote-unquote, forcible defilement, whatever that means, because the court determined that Samantha, quote, made no outcry and made no resistance, unquote. In the end, it was Samantha, not her pederast rapist, whose reputation was sullied, unmarriageable, is how she and young women and girls like her would be branded if their attackers managed to avoid a rape charge. These were the standards facing American women during peacetime in the 19th century. When Civil War broke out in 1861, these standards weren't going anywhere, making the life of any Southern woman unlucky enough to cross paths with a Northern rapist even more of a nightmare than it already was. As Assistant Professor of African American Studies at Yale University, Crystal N. Feimster wrote in a 2013 New York Times article, quote, whether they lived on large plantations or small farms, in towns, cities, or in contraband camps, white and black women all over the American South experience the sexual trauma of war. the records of 450 rape cases that were reported and put through the Union Army's legal process during the American Civil War. This might come across as a bit of a paltry number, but we'll get into why that number was likely a lot larger as we go through this horror show. Regardless of the actual number, the notion of rape being a concern for women in the South is confirmed by a lot of their writings. And we know that these aren't exaggerations because much of them come from diaries that never really had any intention of being released to the public for us to read. 
A North Carolina woman named Catherine Devereaux kept a diary, and one of her entries described a band of Union foragers raping 25 women. In addition, a South Carolinian named Emma Holmes wrote in her diary of the hell that had descended on her state by the Union Army. Quote, Fire, desolation, destruction of property, all provisions, cattle, and Negroes carried, the rape and consequent death or insanity of many ladies of the best families. Unquote. While it might be kind of hard for us modern Americans to feel much sympathy for a slave-owning woman bemoaning the loss of her quote-unquote property, this does help illustrate the picture of civilian female life in the South during the Civil War. More tellingly of the atmosphere present in the South during the war, a Georgia woman named Mary Ann Jones wrote in her own diary, quote, Squads of Yankees came all day. The women finding it entirely unsafe for them to be out of the house at all would run in and conceal themselves in our dwelling, unquote. Unfortunately, while many assaults committed on women were down under the open air, attempting to stay indoors did very little to dissuade Union soldiers from trying to take what they had convinced themselves that they were owed. In one such case in 1864, a group of northern soldiers simply barged into the household of William Iverson. They proceeded to loot the entire home and, according to a report given by the Galveston Weekly News, quote, the soldiers lay hands on Mr. Iverson's daughter, about 16 years of age, and by force, one after another, satisfying their hellish lust, unquote. As would occasionally happen when the man of the house was present, Iverson tried to save his daughter from the gang rape, but the northern soldiers beat him into submission with their clubs and continued to rape his daughter to death. According to the report, quote, The Yankees came back the next morning and dug a hole near the well in the yard and put the corpse in and covered it. Unquote. There was also the story of the group of Union soldiers who invaded the home of Virginia and Fanny Crawford after they learned through one way or another that the house had only women in it. The group was led by a sergeant named Danbridge Brooks, who first knocked at Fanny's door and then kicked it open. While Fanny was screaming out the upstairs window for help, Brooks ordered his men to, quote, shoot her, shoot her, unquote, by which he meant to shoot at her to get her to shut up. After a corporal did shut her up by shooting his gun in her direction, the four men of the group entered the house and began ransacking it and looting its valuables. This changed from a simple looting mission when one of the men, Sergeant Jackson, picked up Fanny and raped her on the floor of the hallway. The leader of the group, Sergeant Brooks, burst into Fanny's 13-year-old daughter Eliza's room where she started screaming and he pointed his gun at her. Within seconds, he had thrown her onto her own bed and raped her in front of her 8-year-old brother and another one of the men, Corporal Shepard, who calmly watched from the hallway. When Shepard later started bragging to other soldiers that he had, quote, fucked the old woman and the young one too, unquote, three of the men, Shepard, Jackson, and Brooks, were captured and, perhaps rightfully so, strung up for their crimes while the fourth man, a John Adams, escaped and, as far as we know, was never heard from again. Home invasion was probably the most common form of rape committed by Union soldiers. While the Third Amendment of the U.S. Constitution stated, and thankfully still states, that no soldier will be quartered by civilians during times of peace, this was not a time of peace. And as far as a Union army and maybe even the Constitution at the time were concerned, despite Abraham Lincoln's proclamations of preserving the Union, the Confederate states were a foreign entity to be occupied until the war reached its end. 
Many of the Union soldiers who committed rape against Southern women would simply barge into their homes as part of a looting party, but many times they would request food and shelter, likely as a false pretense, though though unfortunately no doubt seeing the food that they were provided by these women as a win-win. As an example, in the summer of 1864, a black soldier named Robert Henry Hughes, who was part of the supply trains that kept the food and gear moving from bases to soldiers, arrived at the doorstep of the Batkins household. When the woman of the house, Emily Batkins, answered the door, he asked her for food, a request that Emily honored by having her cook, Eliza Jordan, bake him some bread. It became clear as the two women watched the soldier eat that he wasn't just a bit peckish because he started stuffing his face with a plateful of butter and an entire bowl of milk to go along with the bread. After this, he started prowling the house and eventually the grounds of the property, ignoring any questions put on him by Emily. Emily and Eliza and Emily's daughter Lucy watched him pace around the property, searching for valuables. You can only imagine that the air was pretty thick with tension because the women would later describe how afraid they were. When Hughes returned, without missing a beat, he tried lifting Emily's daughter Lucy's dress before threatening her with his bayonet and throwing her to the ground. As he attempted to rape her, Emily ran over and managed to get him off her daughter while Eliza ran for help. Thankfully for the women, two other soldiers were nearby and managed to catch Hughes, who ran to hide in the woods. Likely because of his race and the high social class of Emily Batkin, since there was indeed a pattern of black soldiers receiving much harsher penalties for even just the attempted rape of well-to-do white women, he ended up being hung. In another case earlier on in the war, a white soldier named John Bell of the 2nd Kansas Cavalry got drunk with another soldier to celebrate Independence Day, and together they went to the home of Elizabeth Haywood and asked her to fix them something to eat. Since Bell's companion was so plastered, he, as Kim Murphy puts it, quote, was unable to ride his horse, unquote, so Bell and Elizabeth put his companion to bed so he could just sober up. While back in the kitchen, no longer having to worry about his far-too-drunk friend, Bell shut himself inside with Elizabeth, who, not being stupid, immediately begged him to let her go. Threatening to blow her brains out if she made any noise, he, as Elizabeth would later testify, quote, caught me and throwed me down and ravished me, unquote. Afterward, Elizabeth fled to her young son's room to wake him up, but Belle followed her into her son's room. In front of her boy, Belle raped her two more times. Then he demanded she finished fixing him supper. Clearly not the smartest rapist in the world, he was convinced by Elizabeth to wait in the kitchen, and after he left, Elizabeth had her son run and get help from a nearby army camp. And perhaps by dumb luck, if you can call it that, Elizabeth's husband was a member of another Kansas regiment, the 9th Cavalry. This might have helped speed along the judicial process against Bell since he received the death penalty by hanging in a fast, thrown-together court-martial. According to the National Archives, quote, Accordingly, on Friday the 11th, in the presence of the whole regiment, he was executed. He was a hardened wretch, and only got his just deserts. Unquote. However, Like I said before, many of the assaults happened right out in the open. I think being trapped within your own home, your property, your only real sanctuary, being trapped in your only place of safety with a stranger out to do monstrous things is probably far more terrifying than being accosted by one of the shrubs. But while being in a confined space, especially your own, with a monster might indeed be far more terrifying and even damaging in some ways... There can be a misplaced sense of safety when you're out walking down the road under the beating sun. That's the one thing that I think many people forget about war. 
It's a lot of blood, muck, rain, snow, and just generally vile conditions, but it also has a lot of pristine, sunny, green, and peaceful surroundings and imagery, if only for the occasional punctuation of artillery in the distance. Tension obviously exists, especially when there's an occupying force present, though, and in the end, I don't think that the distinction between indoors and outdoors really matters. Regardless of where these women were assaulted, they were not safe, and that lack of safety, especially from strangers from a relatively strange land, is really scary. This is what Indiana Rose faced in late 1863 when she was riding home on her horse. When she was around a mile away, she was stopped by a private named George Nelson, a member of the 13th United States Colored Troops Regiment, who asked where she lived and then insisted on coming with her, to which she refused. When he pulled his gun on Indiana in response and threatened to shoot her, it was as if some cue had been given and two other men from the regiment appeared, a Daniel Terse and a Lewis Hardin. Indiana was marched into the woods by Nelson at the point of his bayonet, with which he kept threatening to impale her if she didn't come with him quietly. The files from the National Archives report that Indiana begged the three men and began to cry at this point, to which they threatened to lynch her before they threw her into the dirt and then raped her in succession. When testifying in court after the men were captured, Indiana would say about the incident that, quote, I was near killed, unquote. In some ways, one of the most disturbing parts of the story, due to its implications, is the role of Lewis Hardin, the third man in the group that gang-raped Indiana. According to Indiana's testimony, she believed that Hardin would have let her go if Nelson and Tears hadn't threatened to shoot him if he didn't play ball. As Kim Murphy puts it in I Had Rather Die, quote, Hardin's afterthought response was not atypical for a man involved in gang-rape during wartime. He may have been representative of a man who would not ordinarily rape during peacetime, but went along with the group out of fear, unquote. This type of rape due to fear of other rapists is, in some ways, one of the most unsettling aspects to stories of gang rape, the reality of the victim's experience notwithstanding, of course. When hearing the story of Lewis Hardin, it, it really forces us to confront that awful question of, what would you do in this situation? Can you honestly say if being threatened by your comrades, comrades who know where you sleep at night, and comrades who might not like you all that much, and maybe who have made you privy to their crime, which has a death penalty attached to it, they couldn't care less if you want to rape this woman or not, or even if you think it's wrong. You're a witness, and there are only two ways to ensure your silence as a witness. The absolute horror of this situation for both Hardin and Indiana is not lost on me either. Sometimes, however, sexual assault was a concentrated effort of perverse symbolism. In other words, it was a deliberate act of punishment, of humiliation, upon a person who consorted with the enemy. In West Virginia in 1863, the wife of a state representative who had voted for secession was targeted and assaulted by a group of northern soldiers who had somehow learned who she was. The Macon Daily Telegraph reported on the incident as follows, quote, Mrs. Hall had her clothing tied over her head and was thrust into the street. Report says an outrage to which death is preferable was perpetrated upon her person. No more details are available as far as I could tell, but it doesn't really matter since the message was clear. 
Your husband was a traitor, so it should only be fair that you face punishment. More importantly, these soldiers saw the rape of an innocent woman as the best way to send a message to a man they saw as lower than a dog for his political beliefs, as noxious as those beliefs may well have been. Symbolic rape by association like this didn't occur during the Civil War as much as it did in other conflicts like the ones I described at the beginning of the episode, but the fact that they did occur at all shows that we have yet another pattern present in most instances of rape. This shows us that, yet again, there was nothing special or unique about rape occurring during the American Civil War, at low rates or otherwise. It was par for the course. Most of the assaults that occurred against women during the American Civil War were committed by soldiers who were drunk. As mentioned before with the story of Elizabeth Haywood and her rapist John Bell, Bell and his companion were both completely hammered. This was also par for the course. There's also the story of Mary Ellen DeRiley of Louisiana and her encounter with a Corporal William Chinock, who claimed he had been ordered to bring her to Fort Jackson when he encountered her. Mary Ellen followed Chinock's order and got on a boat with him that took them upriver instead of across it to where the fort was. When they reached their actual intended mooring point, Chinock and the other men with him began drinking whiskey that they'd bought at a general store across the river. During the return trip, an increasingly scared Mary Ellen asked to be taken to see the captain, to which a very drunk Chinock whacked her across the head with his fist and demanded that she have sex with him right there on the deck of the boat. Mary Ellen's testimony was as follows, quote, He told me to lay down there and let him ride me, and I told him that I would not before he struck me again. I was sitting down, and he came before me and shoved me over and rode me. He had all my clothes up over my head. He did not know what he was doing. He entered me. They were all drunk as they could be. Chinock was so drunk that he could not stand up, could not stand without staggering, unquote. There was also the story of three hammer-drunk soldiers from the 33rd Indiana Infantry, led by a private Perry Pearson, invading the McKinley Plantation in Tennessee. After exchanging words with Harriet and Matilda McKinley, Pearson attempted to kidnap Harriet, who managed to escape from his mule and run across the vast lawn. He chased her down, but she managed to escape again and returned to the house. After getting inside, Harriet and another woman from the plantation found Matilda and the children of the house, and they all locked themselves in the room and hid under the bed. The rest of this story reads just like one of those incredibly scary home invasion horror films. The sc- probably the scariest one you can kind of imagine, because the men, still led by Pearson, stalked from room to room throughout the plantation house, flinging open doors and calling out for the women to come out. They eventually came to the only locked door, the door behind which Harriet and the other women were hiding, and yelled through the door that they would, quote, come in and kick the hell out of us. Unquote, as Harriet would later say in her testimony. Out of pure fear, the women opened the door, but Harriet leapt from the window of the bedroom. Unfortunately for her, Pearson chased after her and caught her while the women and children were brought out to the smokehouse, dragging her as she kicked and flailed and screamed. In front of the women, and children herded into the smokehouse and held at bay by his flunky, a private William Lindsay, Harriet reported that Pearson, quote, flung his knees in my back, unquote, and, quote, got on top of me and held me down. He pulled up my clothes, unquote, before he savagely raped her. As this happened, 
Matilda, unable to help Harriet, made a break for it and was chased by the aforementioned flunky Lindsay, but she managed to shove him over to save herself. As Lindsay was getting up, a pantsless Pearson and their other drunken companion came running into the house with Pearson yelling, quote, Yonder comes the headman of the plantation, unquote, leading the three men to flee the premises. The woman that Pearson had raped and the woman Lindsay had attempted to rape were slaves. This is important to bring up because, like I've been sort of hinting at every so often throughout this story, was that the majority of rapes that occurred and likely occurred at the hands of Union soldiers were committed against black women, slaves or otherwise. This produces what can charitably be called a moral complication in the sense that a lot of the time, these slave women ended up fearing the Union men more than their own masters and mistresses. A lot of the time, mostly with a sick sense of irony, the Union men would even use the language of emancipation to break the ice. In fact, when Pearson arrived at the McKinley plantation, the first thing he asked Harriet, who he had his eye on, was if she was a slave or not. When she gave the affirmative, Pearson grinned and said that if she left with him on his mule, that she, quote, would be a slave no longer, unquote. In some ways, it's most telling and yet also the most galling to our modern ears to learn that Harriet gave him a flat-out no. Regardless of why things happened the way they did that night, there's really no other way to describe the choice facing Harriet McKinley as anything other than a Sophie's choice. Kidnapping and rape at the hands of a filthy Yankee thug or continued perpetual servitude at the hands of a racist white master. The rape of black women, both by white and black soldiers, mind you, during the American Civil War is the centerpiece of sorts to all this horror for multiple reasons. For one, it was simply a logical extension of wartime occupation and the spoils of war going to the victor. This has always meant women when talking about the spoils, but when the women that you're talking about are considered to be actual, literal property, it makes it all the easier for a lot of men in that occupying force to justify doing. In the case of our story, this fact also allowed rape to be easier to simply get away with, either because black women were rarely allowed to testify in court Though, even if they did, they'd be facing down the gun barrel of the insane resistance questions of the time, remember? Or because it was never even reported. This is why the relatively low number of rapes that occurred in the Civil War needs to be given a pretty massive grain of salt. Several grains of salt, in fact. And, in fact, during one of the exceptions, the trial of Private Perry Pearson for the rape of Harriet McKinley, in fact... Pearson and his accomplice, Lindsay, demanded that Harriet not be allowed to testify on account that, quote, she was a black woman and therefore incompetent to testify against a white man, unquote. Yeah, these are the supposed liberators, remember, the people who were here to end the racial tyranny of slavery. Now, while the McKinley women were eventually allowed to testify regardless, which is what helped lead to Pearson and Lindsay serving time behind bars, by the way, this was most definitely the exception. In the case of a private William Swift, for example, he was arrested for raping a, a quote, unknown woman of color, unquote. 
despite the fact that the doctor investigating the crime not only found the woman, quote, crying violently, unquote, shortly after the attack, but also found evidence that the woman had been, quote, ravished shortly before, unquote, neither he nor the victim were called to testify at the court-martial of Swift. Private Swift was not found guilty of rape, though he did receive punishment for leaving his post. While most of the time it was just base, drunken sadism, the Civil War itself and the division of the United States was often used as justification for the assaults and the plunder. In the case of Private Louis Trost and Private Louis Sorg and a black servant named Jerry Spades, the three men went to the Virginia mountain home of a widow named Mrs. Swindler. Like many of the other stories covered here and in the sources, Trost, Sorg, and Spades asked for food and shelter, which... Mrs. Swindler provided by giving them bread and honey as well as some milk. Regardless of what the men already knew or had planned when they sought out Mrs. Swindler's home, they saw two small Confederate flags sitting on her mantelpiece, you know, like the miniature flags that you might see at someone's home who's particularly patriotic. Really no big deal. But they were apparently triggered by the sight of them and without missing a beat, called her a, quote, a goddamn secessionist bitch, unquote, and started looting. Mrs. Swindler herself was not raped, but when the men's looting took them to the quote-unquote darkies house out back, they encountered Mrs. Swindler's slave, Polly Walker. Trost immediately approached her and claimed he wanted her before grabbing her and throwing her on the ground. Polly would later testify, quote, I cried and struggled against it, but he said if I didn't give it up, he would kill me. I did not try to hurt him or pull his hair. He pulled up my clothes. I didn't try to keep them down, only begged him not to do it, unquote. The other soldier, Private Sorg, didn't take part in the rape of Polly Walker, but the black servant, Jerry Spades, did. Despite the fact that he did not initiate the assault, Spades received a harsher punishment than Private Trost of five years of hard labor, while Trost only received it until the end of his enlistment. The rape of enslaved and freed black women, however, wasn't confined to just the enlisted men. One of the more notorious stories involves the Army of the Ohio during what became known as the Sack of Athens, referring to the Union invasion and occupation of Athens, Georgia, in April of 1862. This invasion and occupation was under the orders of General Don Carlos Buell, and the regiment itself was commanded by the Russian-born Union Colonel John Basil Turchin, originally named Ivan. The invasion and occupation was seen as necessary by the Union because of the rail depot that was present there, and the people of Athens were actually quite Union-friendly, in an ironic twist of fate, even after secession had occurred. As relayed by Christopher B. Pacinger in the article on this incident in the Encyclopedia of Alabama's website, quote, Townspeople had voted for the Northern Democrat Stephen Douglas in the 1860 election and had burned an effigy of Alabama's virulent secessionist Senator William Lowndes Yancey during the secession debate. Athens Mayor W.P. Tanner later stated that the Union flag had remained atop the courthouse for more than two months after the state left the Union, unquote. Despite this potentially bucolic picture being painted four days after Union forces entered Athens, the Confederate 1st Louisiana Cavalry pushed the Union troops out of Athens with very little resistance. The story might have ended there, but during the humiliating retreat, Union soldiers began to suspect that the people of Athens were firing at their backs alongside the Confederates who chased them out of town. So when Turchin's troops made their return to retake Athens the following day, 
it had become less about simply retaking a valuable target and, as often happens in war, more about simple revenge. And Colonel Turchin did nothing to dissuade this notion. When Turchin's forces retook Athens, it was less like the taking of Paris in World War II by the Allies and more like the sacking of ancient Cremona as relayed by Tacitus. The Union soldiers mainly targeted the commercial district of Athens, beginning their pillage by looting and destroying a local doctor's drugstore, medical instruments, stuff like that, and burning down his entire medical library. They also ransacked and destroyed the interiors of the main dry goods store and stole over three grand from the town's main grocer. The office of an R.C. David was ransacked to $1,000, and a large group of Turchin soldiers broke into the home of a local man named Thomas S. Malone and destroyed over $4,500 worth of his valuables and papers, all while making lewd references and threats to the women of the house and a bit of dark prefacing to what was to come. Because the sack of Athens, clearly being called a sack, didn't end with looting or crude verbal insults toward local women. A group of Turchin's officers, not enlisted men, officers, broke into the home of a Millie Ann Clayton. They not only destroyed all of her clothes and linens, but also threatened to shoot Millie Ann before rampaging the kitchen and attempting to gang rape Millie Ann's black servant. The records don't state the servant girl's name, nor do they explain how she escaped. But this kind of indiscriminate orgy of rape and pillaging continued. The home of John F. Malone was plundered by massive amounts of Union soldiers, and upon moving to his plantation, the soldiers decided to expand upon their conquest. The official record of the War of Rebellion described the action as follows, quote, A part of this brigade went to the plantation of the above-named Malone and quartered in the Negro huts for weeks, debauching the females and roaming with the males over the surrounding country to plunder and pillage, unquote. The idea that these soldiers would do anything but force the now quote-unquote liberated women to their every whim would be naive, especially considering the length at which they were there and the unofficial testimony provided by the survivors of the sack of Athens. But perhaps the worst crime, smaller in scale, but more horrifying in implication, occurred elsewhere. A war widow, a woman named Charlotte Hines, had her home infiltrated and burgled by three Union soldiers, one of them identified as a private heir Bowers. When testifying in court on behalf of her slave, Charlotte Hines explained how the three men, including Bowers, forced their way into her home on May 4, 1862, and, quote, at once commenced indecent familiarities with the slaves, calling the women sissy and throwing their arms around them, running their hands into the women's bosoms, unquote. After the men basically destroyed her entire home in their looting, they returned outside where they began to harass the remaining women. Mary's testimony continues, quote, One woman and her daughter, the latter of about 14 years of age, unquote. According to Charlotte Hines' testimony, the 14-year-old girl held a baby in her arms, which Bowers ordered her to put down in the dirt because, in his words, quote, I want to use you, unquote. To this... The 14-year-old slave girl began crying for her mother, who was desperately trying to get the help of Charlotte Hines, who was still inside. Bauer simply glowered at her and said, quote, God damn your mammy, we will have her next, unquote, before he and his friend proceeded to rape the girl, while the third soldier simply stood by and watched and the girl's mother was forced to flee into the woods. 
Bowers, for his crime that we would rightly today call child rape, was placed in a guardhouse for two days before returning to duty. The reason for this lack of punishment given by Bowers' superior officer, quote, I would not arrest one of my men on Negro testimony, unquote. And the implication that's so disturbing about this one story is that this kind of thing was occurring all over Athens, and we only have a couple records to show for it. This isn't to say that union leadership was okay with this, because upon hearing of these crimes and others throughout the city and throughout the campaign, the man overall in charge of the invasion of Athens, Major General O.M. Mitchell, filed a report with the Secretary of War under Lincoln complaining of the overall lawlessness of his part of the army that was going on, which was stretched across a 400-mile-long line. Quote, The most terrible outrages, robberies, rapes, arson, and plundering are being committed by lawless brigands and vagabonds connected with the army. Wherever I am present in person, all is quiet and orderly. I beg authority to control these plunderers by visiting upon their crimes the punishment of death. The request was granted by the secretary and confirmed by Lincoln. Nothing changed. Many of the men who were court-martialed for their actions against women during the sack of Athens received light sentences involving hard labor, light prison sentences, and, and even simple acquittals. In addition, a lot of these men, after the fact, would be granted presidential pardons from both Lincoln and his successor, Andrew Johnson, after Lincoln was assassinated, mostly just because they were painted as heroes or or misguided fools carried away in the moment of lust or whatever. Fill in the blank. The point is, is that they were granted reprieves by the highest offices of the government, all for the sake of the cause. But this is all assuming that they were even charged, which many of these men were not. And of those who were, very few were even charged with rape, not even attempted rape, usually only getting a slap on the wrist for dereliction of duty. Colonel Turchin, the man who actually headed up the action of invading Athens for his part in the sack of Athens, I should say, would eventually be court-martialed for dereliction of duty, among a number of other crimes, just simply because he was seen as wholly responsible for the chaos that had been unleashed in Athens, Georgia. Problem was, he would also be promoted to general, and wouldn't you know it, he was then above the court's authority and saw no punishment for his responsibility over the actions of his men against the businesses, men, and, as we've covered, women of Athens, both whites and enslaved blacks alike. Based on the amount of weight that quote-unquote Negro testimony was given during the Civil War, obviously by the Confederates, but also by the Union, it really is impossible to say how many black women were raped during the occupation of Athens or during the entire war in general. Often reports in the newspapers of the time took the form of really just salacious asides of varying value without ever giving names, like the correspondent who flippantly referenced the, quote, rape upon the person of a Negro child 11 years old, unquote. The truth is, apart from the stories that got this mealy-mouthed tabloid journalistic treatment and the rare cases where a slave's master or mistress would testify on their behalf, we'll never know how many black women were raped or even murdered during the Civil War. But based on the stories that we do know, we can conclude that they were both far more common due to lack of consequences, like we saw with the pederast private heir Bowers earlier, and that there were varying levels of motivation and self-justification going on. This is because one of the darker aspects 
maybe the darkest aspect, depending on who you ask, of rape during the Civil War continued to extend into the realm of politicized sexual violence. Similar in some ways to the rapes mentioned earlier during the Bosnian Civil War. In other words, many rapes of black women by Union soldiers ostensibly served a quote-unquote greater purpose, or rather, the purpose of sending a message. A Confederate soldier named Edwin Fay wrote in a letter to his wife about an incident in which two Union soldiers, quote, took two Negro women in the parlor before their mistresses and sent in soldier after soldier until they had actually killed the Negro women by violation, unquote. In other words, a large group of Union men had raped two slave women to death in front of their white mistresses to send a message. As Kim Murphy says in her analysis of this event, quote, the symbolism is all too obvious. In the first instance, white women were forced to watch the rapes of their slaves. The soldiers conveniently chose black women where they were far less likely to be prosecuted for the crime. And in doing so, they maintained white female purity, all while proving that the white women could just as easily have been victims if the soldiers had chosen to do so. Unquote. There's no mincing words here. The murderous rape of slave women by Union soldiers had been used as an act of terrorism against the enemy. This wasn't a one-time instance either. A Mr. B.E. Harrison wrote a letter directly to Abraham Lincoln in which he expressed outrage, not that his wife had been raped, but that his servant girl, quote-unquote, had been raped in front of his wife. Union General William Dwight submitted a report in which he stated, quote, Negro women were ravished in the presence of white women and children, unquote. During famous Union General Sherman's campaign in South Carolina, the Charleston Mercury newspaper reported other occurrences, quote, The officers exercised no restraint over the soldiers, and even some of them joined those under them in committing acts of lawlessness. They entered private houses, broke open drawers and trunks, and in many instances, house girls, which is referring to slaves, by the way, were ravished in rooms before their mistresses and in yards in front of the houses, unquote. During these rampages, torture was employed as another terroristic tactic against some of the women that the Union soldiers came across. The Arkansas National Democrat reported in April of 1865 that, quote, a band of 15 or 20 men visited several houses where the women and children were left alone. After being shamefully outraged, these fiends caught the women and held their feet on burning coals. In some instances, they carried their tortures to such an extent that one woman died. Another had her leg amputated, and several others were burned to the knees so badly that they will be cripples for life. Worst of all, an officer and the Reverend Mr. Hutchison, an ex-chaplain, are implicated. Unquote. It's not clear how often the rape and torture of black women was done as an act of terrorism against the enemy, but... It's clear by some Confederate accounts that black women were indeed being singled out by Union troops. A man from the 7th Tennessee Regiment named John N. Williams wrote in his diary in 1863, quote, Her from home, the Yankees has been through there, seemed to be their object to commit rape on every Negro woman they can find, unquote. Acts of rape as terrorism weren't confined to the rape of black women, however. While there was certainly a pretty obvious symbolism in place in the cases where black soldiers, free black men, mind you, raped white southern women, the symbolism seems to have only really been of interest to the white soldiers involved, rather than the black perpetrators. 
According to an article written in the Arkansas True Democrat, the following incident took place in 1863 at the home of a Mr. Anthony. Quote, the Union soldiers permitted a number of Negro teamsters to seize the daughters and ravish those unprotected females. Their mother besought the protection of the officers, but these brutal men cursed her as a damned rebel, saying that they understood that the husbands of her daughters were in the Confederate service and that they were being served properly, thus to be outraged by a race they had enslaved. Unquote. In the same newspaper, a month later, another story was written in which a similar incident occurred. Quote, two Union soldiers seized two young girls and outraged them. Afterwards, two Negroes, after severe struggling, committed rapes on two respectable ladies while their white comrades in arms stood by laughing at the shrieks and prayers of the poor women. Unquote. Now, there's an obvious question that needs to be addressed here, and you might be wondering it yourselves, but we got to ask it. Was this all just exaggerated propaganda? After all, a lot of these reports are coming from clearly biased sources, as in newspapers from Arkansas, you know, southern states. And it's definitely possible. If you read any of the literature or even laws, unfortunately, from the Jim Crow era of the South or statements made by racist politicians, you know that the first thing that always gets invoked is the fear-mongering racist talking point of the brutish black man carrying off the helpless white woman, better if she's blonde, of course. And this is something we saw played out in the twisted fantasies of the KKK and even part of noteworthy American cinema in D.W. Griffith's 1915 film Birth of a Nation. These stories, unfortunately, definitely play into that racist trope. However, given the fact that black soldiers were almost always punished more severely for the crime of rape, and given the fact that this was generally known by their white comrades who were egging them on, and given the fact that we know crimes like the ones described a moment ago did happen, it does help clarify something regarding rape being used as a weapon against the enemy by an occupying force. Specifically, that a soldier or his officer doesn't have to actually commit the rape themselves during war for the rape that does occur to serve its tactical purpose of terrorizing and humiliating the enemy. As Kim Murphy puts it in her book, quote, Again, the symbolism is unmistakable. In these cases, referring to the stories I just quoted, the white soldiers took no risk by letting the black men do the raping. Yet they were equally guilty by allowing the rapes to happen. In fact, the brutality of war is particularly apparent where the white soldiers stood by and laughed, or essentially told the women they deserved rape by association with their husbands in the Confederate military. Unquote. There's a saying that you probably know, that the more things change, the more they stay the same. The template for northern abolitionist what we could maybe even today call socially conscious racism was essentially laid by those laughing soldiers the ones who we've been taught to believe were there to fight injustice and give liberation were really just cheerleaders of people who did their dirty work for them this is representative of when you have someone who can take the hangman's noose in your place and you can continue to lay claim to a righteous cause. That's vicarious redemption embodied. These stories continue, and I'm not about to cover all 450 cases that even managed to get put down in the record. These stories contain the varying levels of horror that I've already covered many times over. They occasionally involve sexual torture, sometimes involve the sexual abuse of children, 
usually involving drunken soldiers of nearly all rank, often involving threats to blow the victim's brains out if they make any noise, frequently involving crimes in which children and other women were forced to watch, sometimes even waiting their turn, and nearly always ending with the perpetrators getting let off easy by a court that would even subject 10-year-old girls to the typical did-you-resist questions. It's a constant, repetitive horror show that really forces us to simply beg this question at this point. Why did this happen? It's a natural question to ask. Why did this happen? We're Americans. We're better than this, right? For some reason, when asking why when talking about rape, wartime rape or otherwise, it, it's, it's a controversial thing to ask. Part of it has to do with the notion that if an explanation, like a reasonable explanation, a lo- reasonable meaning logical in this case, uh, if, one, if a reasonable logical explanation is provided for why the rapist did what they did, that it's some sort of excuse, that some excuse is being made for them, or that someone could interpret it as an excuse being made for them. And I get it. There really is no why. The act of rape is singular, and about as base as a human can get. Remember the chimpanzee war parties, after all. But there's something that doesn't get examined closely enough, especially in the case of war, and a war whose conditions were as bad as those in the American Civil War. The common denominator in these stories of rape during the Civil War is simple. Wartime misery. C.J. Kilmer, in his Dangerous History podcast, um, in his masterful series in the Civil War, he has an episode called The Grunt's Eye Perspective that paints this picture really well for me. I mean, he himself said he was very proud of it, and he has every reason to be because it's a really good episode. In that episode, he explores the truly wretched conditions that many of the soldiers on both sides faced in particular black soldiers, who were almost always without fail given the worst jobs, like like clearing the mangled bodies and pieces of their fellow soldiers from the battlefield. Jobs like this produce not only war weariness, but straight-up trauma. Imagine that you're being sent out into the smoking battlefield after surviving literally the scariest moments of your life, and you're being told to pile up the intact and semi-intact bodies into a wagon. Then imagine that one of the bodies looking out at you is your best friend that you were just eating breakfast with this morning. That's the stuff that kills the soul. The fear these men faced was also nonstop. Men would be killed at breakfast, and the injuries sustained were beyond horrific. CJ gets into a lot of these injuries in his podcast, and they're horrifying. I mean, in... In the wartime accounts by these soldiers, you can read some of the most gruesome accounts of injury that that the filmmakers behind the Saw franchise could only think up, or so you would think. I mean, like I said, CJ in his podcast talks about these injuries, including a man holding his lulling tongue in place after getting his jaw ripped off by an artillery shell, or a man dismembered so thoroughly that the only thing holding his top and bottom half together was his exposed spinal cord. Or the man who was struck in the shoulder so hard by artillery bombardment that his still-beating heart was exposed from the wound. These are some of the most horrifying examples of wartime injuries I've ever heard, let alone read. And 
they're definitely the worst that were witnessed and recorded during the Civil War. They made it into the record for a reason. And yet, perhaps most tellingly, this isn't what most soldiers on the ground reported fearing the most. The injury most feared by many of these men was castration. And it always comes back to that, doesn't it? Another important factor to consider is that these men who witnessed and lived through this horror were largely undisciplined, non-military men. Most soldiers in the Civil War were volunteers, but it wasn't like today with the screaming drill sergeant and intense boot camp training. These were civilians who had never seen combat and many of whom had never even held a rifle until they joined up. You take men like that, give them horrible leadership, which they often had, and give them lots and lots of alcohol, which they always managed to procure despite strict rules against its consumption on duty, there are going to be some wretched consequences. They are going to do everything they can to escape this unimaginable horror and misery in which they're living, regardless of who they hurt. This is what we could call the big why of this story. When Why did this happen? The big why. They caused the women of the South misery because, quite simply, war is a miserable thing that touches all of us. It leaves no stone unturned. And because war is a miserable thing that touches us all, you're going to see the misery rising everywhere, especially among the men doing the fighting. And because the human mind simply cannot function in a constant state of misery, it is going to look for coping mechanisms, which it will find. And because of that, you are far more likely to see the increased tendency to dehumanize anyone, especially anyone who can serve as a proxy for the enemy that is causing you that misery. This and all the reasons we've been looking at throughout this terribly bleak story is why the women of the southern United States were forced into the meat grinder of war in ways different in method, but just as horrific in result as the men fighting on the battlefield. None of this is an excuse for what these men did to these women. It's not. This is an explanation. That's it. Some men will keep the monstrosity they feel within themselves that is caused by all this misery. They'll keep it inside and they'll go fetal or get drunk or find some other way to cope. Maybe they'll just transmit it into heroics on the battlefield. But others will find ways to unleash this monstrosity within them on those weaker than themselves because the monstrosity is all that remains within them. That is the true cost of war even if it's considered to be a quote-unquote low-rape war. There are still and will still be historians who see the American Civil War as a low-rape war, so, so we don't get lost in the weeds of defining what a low-rape war even means, philosophically, morally, legally, statistically. It, we just need to just say it. It's obviously true that the number of sexual assaults and even the nature of the assaults in the American Civil War is far far different normally than the rape of Nanking or the Soviet anti-Nazi reprisals or the Bosnian Civil War. This was not a common occurrence in the way it was in many other wars, granted, but does that mean that the reality of rape in the American Civil War should be diminished? I don't know. I... I struggled with this because it's impossible not to find yourself making comparisons about 
what one thing is more evil than what other thing when you look at stories like this, especially when you see the differences between not just now and then, but also the 1860s and the 1760s or the 1460s or earlier. Because it's true, things had and have gotten better institutionally, technologically, and even socially. Putting the political and economic reasons aside, we can say that the United States went to war with itself to liberate an entire slave class from bondage and even make laws to ensure that we would never have a slave class again. I think this is why Americans tend to see our civil war as something different and why even ostensibly objective civil war historians see the civil war as something different. I, I think that most of us Americans want to see the civil war as something special Something that was certainly brutal and ugly, but also something that had a noble cause. A noble cause of liberation at its end, acting like some sort of beacon through the darkness. We don't want to feel like this idea is a farce. That this was never a war of liberation. That this couldn't have been a war like any other brutal war ever waged by members of our species. Like I said before, we're Americans, and we don't fight wars like that. We're better than that. And yet, even when I think about the necessary liberation that did occur because of this supposed war of brother against brother that my fellow countrymen engaged in 150-some years ago, I always go back to the chimps in Tanzania. Strip away all of the pretense, all of the ideological or racial justification, all of the raw, basic numbers, and you realize that it's all the same. It was just a war, a war like any other. It involved conquest. It involved occupation. It involved suffering, murder, torture, and unspeakable violence against men and women alike. It involved war parties of upright, hairless apes charging into enemy territory, hell-bent on the spoils going to the victor. ¶¶ 